in each one of our lives. As we come and we have confessed, we bring nothing to you in our hands, and you provide everything for us. Would you save today in you alone? Sanctify our hearts by your word, by the power of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I have a seat? What do you want first, the good news or the bad news? The bad news? Good. <laughs> so that's what you're getting. <laughs> As we jump into our study in Zephaniah, he begins with some pretty bleak news. The gist of the bad news was that God is going to clean house in this world. We sometimes think that if God is truly loving, he can't be a God of judgment. We tend to see judgment as horrible, and we think that kindness and severity can't mix. We like the idea of a soft, gentle deity who smiles a lot and approves of everyone. And yet God's word consistently disagrees with our assumptions, ideas, or wishes. It states plainly in Romans 11, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. That comes actually right before what we just sang, the end of Romans 11. The Bible also claims that God is love in his very nature. He is gentle, lowly, merciful, and so on. And at the very same time, he is a God of righteousness, holiness, and justice. If we believe God's word, his love and his justice are woven together in his character. In fact, his love or his justice actually flows out of his love. Much like a good doctor who always seeks to remove a cancer from one of their patients, even if they have to cause temporary harm with surgery or chemo or radiation, so God will remove the evils that plague and destroy the people that he loves. The question for us is, will we believe God is who he says he is, not who we think he must be? Do we truly believe that every one of us is hell-bound if left to our own ways? Do we believe that we need Jesus' blood, as we just sang, to both save us from wrath and make us pure? If we do, it will affect the way we worship, the way we witness, the way we pray. Really, it will affect everything about the way we live our lives. Go ahead and open up the scriptures with me to Zephaniah 1, if you haven't already. And if you've never turned there in your life, don't be afraid to use the table of contents. The page number's on the screen if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided in the seats underneath you. If you were with us two weeks ago, I gave a whole sermon on the context behind Zephaniah, how several generations of 
where massive spiritual ups and downs had gone on in Judah. Hezekiah was a great godly king. His son Manasseh was a moral train wreck. God judged Manasseh. He let him be exiled. Yet Manasseh then repented, and God restored him. Amon came next, and he was so awful, he only lasted two years. But he was followed by Josiah, who, it says, sought the Lord with all his heart. He oversaw huge spiritual reforms all across Judah and Israel. Zephaniah's ministry as a prophet took place during these days. Look at the first verse. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, if the Hezekiah there in Zephaniah's genealogy was King Hezekiah, which scholars think is likely, then Zephaniah would have had some royal blood in him. He'd have had, he would have been a cousin of Josiah's, actually, which would have given him ready access to the palace and to the throne. Now, Josiah's reign, as we just said, it was one of the major ups in Judah's history. Lots of good things going on. So we might wonder why Zephaniah would come along right then and prophesy about judgment. You'd think that he'd have been more of a cheerleader at this time. Right? boy, Josiah. Way to go, people. Keep it up. Well, there are several likely reasons why Zephaniah's prophecies start out rather dark. First, these were overall very dark days for God's people, spiritually speaking. Josiah's father and grandfather had led the people into some despicable stuff. If true justice was to be done, the Lord had to send judgment. And he promised he would. But he also promised Josiah to hold off until after he was off the scene. But Judah's eventual fate had already been sealed. Second, Josiah's reforms weren't likely complete yet. Immorality was so ingrained in the culture. So Zephaniah lent his voice to, the, to support the good work that Josiah was doing. And third, Zephaniah knew that the good of Josiah's reign wasn't going to last. As a matter of fact, Josiah's sons and grandsons crashed and burned. So whether Zephaniah was denouncing evils of the past warning holdouts in the present, or wanting his words to echo down into future generations, this was a necessary word from the Lord. And on that note, notice the most important words of verse 1, where it says, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. These were not just some cranky prophet's words. These were the very words of God. So, which means this, these were words that were authoritative, they carried authority, they can be trusted as true. Now the name used for God here and throughout the book is written out in English as the Lord. But whenever you notice, see that name written in all caps in the Old Testament, it's actually the name Yahweh. The name that God self-identified himself as, his, his covenantal name revealed to the people of Israel. 
He proclaimed in Exodus 34 that he was Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity. Now he goes on to promise justice for sin too, as part of who he is. But the name Yahweh itself, first and foremost, implied it, it exuded love and faithfulness. So before you hear him pronounce dark judgment through Zephaniah, know that this was coming from the just God who is merciful, gracious, patient, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the word of Yahweh that came to Zephaniah. May we hear these words as such. Now even with that preface, nothing can really soften the blow of Zephaniah's opening words. They can be shocking. One scholar imagines them being spoken with ominous musical accompaniment. He says, with the thud of a mighty kettle drum, the prophet startles his hearers into a recognition of the solemnity of the hour. Everything on the face of the earth shall be utterly wiped away. What? Yep. Follow along. Verse 2. God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Gotta love my holiday timing, right? Happy Father's Day. <laughs> Most people, though, would hear the words I just read and think them utterly crazy. If there's a God, they'd say, then God must be an inclusive, friendly guy or gal in the sky. Now, wherever did that idea come from? Oh, that's right, we always imagine God's in our own image. But people openly scoff at this, the idea that God would ever bring judgment on the earth. You may scoff as well. It's been... So long since God promised to judge the world. People, plenty, people, plenty of people sorry, see the pain, the suffering, the evil that God hasn't put an end to yet and think that that logically means that he won't ever put an end to them. He's either asleep on the job, doesn't care, or never was there to begin with. Now, in case you don't know, that's not actually logical. But these attitudes shouldn't catch us by surprise. God's word predicted this exact thing. In 2 Peter, it says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, he hasn't come yet, so why believe he ever will? What these words in Zephaniah confirm for us is that God has promised to do this. He has promised to judge the world. 
every day he withholds his judgment is actually evidence of his patience. He hasn't been inactive or indifferent. He's been incredibly long-suffering. But, but, the Lord's comprehensive judgment is inevitable. And that's the main point I think we start to see here, is that the Lord's comprehensive judgment is inevitable. Now, most of Zephaniah will talk about specific judgments against specific groups of people. But these two early verses are obviously much larger in scope. They're global, right? He says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of of the earth, declares the Lord. Zephaniah is speaking of something bigger than anything that has happened in history up to this point, which tells me that this is something that is yet to be totally fulfilled. It's very clear that, that God's judgment described here will be comprehensive. I'll utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. Like I said earlier, God's got a clean house. It sounds like he'll gut the place and start over. The language is reminiscent of what God said before the flood in Noah's day, actually, where he said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Now, we know that he won't ever do this again with water but he will still judge the world. There are a couple interesting things going on in these verses, though. First, the combination of mankind, beasts, birds, and fish in verse 2 might sound familiar to you. And that's because it echoes even further back than the flood. This goes back to Genesis 1. Except the order of creation in Genesis 1 is exactly reversed in Zephaniah 1. So God created fish, then birds, then beasts, then mankind as the pinnacle of his creation. Here he says, he will sweep away man and beasts and birds and fish. So what we have is, is basically an undoing or appending of creation. It's a, a decreation, if you will. Another interesting thing to note is the phrase that God repeats three times. I will sweep away. I will sweep away. Over and over. That may conjure up images of, of people being swept away by, say, a flood or a tornado or a tsunami. So when we hear God say he will utterly sweep away everything, every living creature, that's a terrifying prospect. Everything includes everyone, all of us. And where will we all be swept off to? Non-existence? Hell? Doesn't say. But it seems so utterly comprehensive, we assume there must be no exceptions to this. We wonder, will God actually sweep away even the righteous and the, the good, along with everything evil. Well, if you flip over one page with me to Zephaniah 3, which we'll get to in a few weeks, it says in verse 8, 
This is God speaking still. He says, For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Now the word there for gather is a closely related word to sweep away in chapter 1. And it's used in the exact same context. That God is going to gather or assemble the nations before executing his judgment. And from many other descriptions of God's judgment in Scripture, we know that he's going to sort between the righteous and the unrighteous on that day. He won't just indiscriminately sweep away everyone off into hell. He's not going to do that. Even in Zephaniah 3, we will see that some people survive through this judgment. Through this all-encompassing judgment, people still survive through it. So, what I want you to picture is God like a housekeeper here in, in chapter 1, with a broom in his hand. The message paraphrases God saying, I'm going to make a clean sweep of the earth, a thorough house cleaning. I don't know who does the sweeping in your home. I remember learning to do it as a kid. But when we sweep, we don't just sweep away everything under a rug or out a door, at least usually. We use a dustpan usually. And we sweep things up into the dustpan. And then once we've gathered up everything from the floor, we can easily dispose of the mess, but we can also see if there's anything good to be saved or salvaged. Oh, a Lego. A quarter. A drill bit. Jason DeRucci, an expert on the book of Zephaniah, says that sweeping away is really a positive statement of God gathering everything on earth together for what he calls judicial assessment. Judicial assessment, and then the punishment or blessing that would follow. So if you want to read this as sweep up instead of sweep away, I think that's okay. Nothing on the face of the earth will escape coming before God as judge. But there will be both gloriously positive and horrifically negative outcomes on that day. All that said, Zephaniah definitely starts out by focusing on the negative side. That's why he echoes the language of Noah's flood. It's why verse 3 says he'll sweep away the rubble with the wicked, likely referring to idols as the rubble, false gods who cause his people to sin. Verse 3 also says he'll cut off mankind, which must specifically refer to the wicked, given that he says later in Zephaniah about those who are saved and not cut off. But there have been many times when God's judgment has already fallen in history. Judah would experience this sweeping away in a miniature yet overwhelming way in the near future to Zephaniah. But when will this fully happen? Well, we don't know the day or the hour. Only our Father in heaven does. So will we trust his timing? Anyone who reads God's word, though, as true must conclude that God will certainly judge. The prophets prophesied it. Jesus taught it. The apostles emphasized it. Here it's decreed by the Lord to happen. 
Think of all the I wills here. There are at least six in three verses. I will do this. I will do this. The Lord is the one declaring this. So this will happen. It's certain. And no, it's not insane at all to think that God will keep his word. Unlike Thanos, fictional and foiled Thanos, our Lord truly is inevitable in real life. It's going to happen. I pray that this sweeping up does happen soon. might be surprised to hear me say that. But really, it's no different than praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because this will accompany that. Besides, I, I do long for justice in the world, don't you? We might initially recoil at the idea of God judging the world, but when we really stop and, and consider it, I think we'd all admit that we want it. We even need it to be true. We want, to, we want God to be a just and righteous God who will right all the wrongs in the world. No one wants abusers and adulterers and murderers and monsters to, to get away with it forever. In fact, we want it now, right? Yes, we want a God of justice. We just don't like it being on his terms, not our own. We prefer to tell God when and how he can judge. Who do we think we are? We also hate the truth that we too are the criminals in God's economy. That we're God's enemies who rightly deserve his wrath. We need a just God, and we also need a merciful God. So praise the Lord that he's both. Some will still claim that God is a villain for things like this, for his wrath. But that's because we fail to accurately see ourselves as the villains in the story. Of course, God will appear to be the bad guy to the actual bad guys. Verses 2 and 3 declare that the Lord's coming, judgment is coming, but they don't give us the reasons why yet. They don't tell us why this is happening. That comes after Zephaniah is going to list numerous reasons for judgment. And I think that as we go along, we will see that the Lord's comprehensive judgment is also understandable. The Lord's comprehensive judgment is it's called for, it's just, it's reasonable, and it's understandable. It's understandable when we realize what we've actually done with our sin. The people of Judah didn't understand yet. So Zephaniah helps them understand. Look at verse 4. It says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, 
those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Later on in Zephaniah, God will pronounce judgment on some evil nations around Judah, but it's like he says, I'm going to start with Judah and Jerusalem. Reminds me of 1 Peter 4.17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. In Zephaniah, we may ask, like, how is God just in bringing comprehensive judgment against earth? But that's not the question Zephaniah is trying to answer. That's more of an assumption of his. It's like he thinks, well, obviously everyone deserves God's judgment. Like Paul says in Romans, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. No, the main issue Zephaniah addresses isn't why God is judging the world. The main question was, why were God's people in Judah included in this judgment? I mean, this would have been unthinkable for the people of Judah to hear. How could they fall? Judah was a, a favored tribe of the Lord. Jerusalem was a, a holy city of God's temple, his presence on earth. And yet God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. An outstretched hand in Scripture was used to, to describe God fighting his enemies, like when he struck Egypt with plagues and delivered Israel out of their hands. I don't know if you saw the, the video of the reporter at the Stanley Cup final game recently who, was, who had a rowdy fan try to barge into her live video, and she stiff-armed him. It was something else, like, no, 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 get out of here. Here it's like God was shockingly saying, I'm going to stiff-arm you, Judah. I'm going to move against you understand why he would do this, we need to go back to the book of the law, which, if you remember, had recently been rediscovered in Josiah's kingdom. The book of Deuteronomy especially describes the covenant that God made with his people. God promised to never forsake his covenant, but he also promised to enforce the covenant if his people ever abandoned him. At the time of Deuteronomy, he was just about to drive out a bunch of evil nations from Canaan who fully deserved his judgment and give, his land to, give the land to his people. But he warned them, if they ever abandoned him for false gods, they too would be judged. Listen to some of Deuteronomy 4. You can turn there if you want, but you don't need to. I'm going to read it for you. It says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the sea. See those same four categories? 
And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bowed down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven." goes on, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. You hear the echoes of that in Zephaniah? It's all over the place. In the backstory we saw said that the kings before Josiah led Judah and Jerusalem astray, it says, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The people of Israel and Judah knew better. They had so many privileges from the Lord. They had Yahweh's covenant, but they'd broken their side of the covenant. They'd been set apart by God for worship, but now their worship was totally corrupt. They'd been called out of the nations, but now they were worse than the nations. They'd been chosen, saved, loved, and ruled by God himself, but they'd abandoned him. This was personal. And therefore, they would face the consequences. You can picture Zephaniah and many of the Old Testament prophets, for that matter, like good prosecution lawyers. You know, the, the lawyers in court who try to prove people's guilt. Right? Pointing out the laws that they were breaking, compiling evidence, preaching about their failures to live up to God's standards, the covenant that they made with God. It's like they're constantly bringing God's people to court. Here, Zephaniah, as we saw, identifies three forms of idolatry that have been commonplace in Judah. The worship of Baal, the worship of the stars, and the worship of Milcom, or Molech is another word for that. There were straight idolaters who replaced God with false gods. There were syncretists who tried to combine worshiping God and worshiping false gods. And then verse 6 talks about apostates, those who had just abandoned true worship of God. And if you think that these were just problems in ancient Judah and not modern Canada, think again. First, consider the idolaters. He says, I will stretch out my hand. I'll cut off from this place, in verse 4, the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, so those who are leading people astray, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens. Baal 
was a god of fertility and storms. In an agrarian culture, these things were vital. So worshiping a god who'd help you with them would have been very enticing. And throughout the Old Testament, we often see Israel getting ensnared by Baal worship. But this was a direct attack on the exclusivity, the uniqueness, and the oneness of God. God deserved all of their worship. So now God promised to to sweep the land clean of every last trace of Baal. His land had been corrupted to the core. It was time to do a clean sweep of the place. People also worship the hosts of the heavens or the stars. Many cultures have done so. Stars are, are beautiful, marvelous things. I mean, without the sun, our closest star, we'd all die. But they are still created things, not the creator who is forever praised. Now, we may not usually bow down to worship physical idols or celestial bodies today, but think Why did the ancient people so readily do so? What were their heart motivations? Well, they longed for fertility or good weather because children or good crops or herds brought them security and significance. Thus, they sought out security and significance in Baal. Where do we seek security or significance today? In our money? In our investments? In our jobs? In our education? In our social status? In relationships? And yes, even in fertility and children. As scholar Ian Duguid put so well, we believe that if we possess those things, we will be safe and our lives will matter. The sacrifices that these gods demand of us are that we put family and church in second place to our careers, or that we make moral compromises to get ahead or to make people like us. Sexual temptation continues to be a powerful drive for many of us. Whether in literal or virtual forms, it promises satisfaction or safety or a distraction from the emptiness of the rest of our lives. The old gods still hold many of us in their grip. Likewise, people worship stars because they were thought to control people's destinies. By the way, Close to 30% of North Americans still believe in the horoscope. Not gone away. But more commonly, we still make all kinds of offerings to whatever we think guides our destiny. So academic success, finances, coolness, fitness, beauty, homes, possessions, and more. Whatever guarantees a comfy, controllable life, we'll live for that. Duguid continues, we sign up for jobs we don't like, enter unwise relationships, spend money we don't have, and waste precious years of our lives because we desire power, comfort, or intimacy, and we are willing to bow down and give ourselves to whatever seems most likely to provide us with those things. Think. What might we be willing to sacrifice in order to achieve our goals or dreams in life? Perhaps 
if we're desperate enough, even those things that are most precious to us, our integrity, sexual purity, our marriages, our children, our children's souls. Will we lose our own souls at the altars of comfort, security, power, identity, or pleasure? Now, there are many people who give themselves completely over to pursuing these idols today. But here's the thing. Many of us believers think we can be deeply committed to the Lord and also remain deeply attached to our own chosen idols at the same time, just like the syncretists did in Zephaniah's day, mixing true and false worship. As it says in verse 5, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, this is a form of worship to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. Now, these people were just covering their bases by worshiping the Lord and other gods. You know, just in case the Lord wasn't the only option or the best option, just in case the Lord wasn't paying attention or didn't care about them. This is why they did this. So where are you covering your bases? Where are your passions or affections divided? What do you think that you can't lose without your life falling apart? Is there any created thing that you're trusting to do what only your creator can do? Finally, verse 6 talks about people who may or may not be worshiping any particular idol. They were apathetic, apostates. But these apostates had clearly turned away from following the Lord. It says those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So they had sins of omission, not doing the right and the good things that they should have done, seeking the Lord, inquiring of him, or praying for his guidance. They no longer gave God a thought or a prayer. And we all know someone in this category today. We may have been there ourselves. And I wonder, does it describe you now? If any of these verses describe us, our heart motivations, our idolatries, our sins of commission or omission, we need to take our sin seriously and come clean today. Before the Lord cleans house, and we find ourselves swept up before his throne. Because we've devalued and betrayed the Lord of everything. His judgment's understandable. Now when we hear all this sobering news, we wonder, is there any escape? Is there any way to escape his judgment? If God's judgment is so comprehensive, it's overwhelming. What, what hope is there then? I feel I have to give you a ray of light as we close because it's not actually hopeless at all. And that's that the Lord's comprehensive judgment is avoidable. The Lord's judgment, though it's inevitable, though it's understandable, is also avoidable. If it wasn't avoidable, 
there would have been no point for Zephaniah to prophesy at all. Except for God to just taunt those who were hopelessly lost. But that's not what's happening here. Or if it wasn't avoidable, Zephaniah could have just ended his book at verse 6. But he doesn't. In the weeks ahead, we're going to see the hope that he offers in the midst of the darkness. Remember, I asked you what you want to hear first, the good news or the bad news. You said the bad news. So that's where he started. (laughs) But even in verse 6, we can sense the hope of a different outcome. If condemnation is found in idolatry and apostasy, then the implication is that our saving grace can be found in the opposites of these. That we can turn back to the Lord. We can follow Him. We can seek Him. We can inquire of Him. In fact, what we're going to see is the major application of the whole book of Zephaniah is that the Lord's people would seek Him, go after Him, pursue Him, Only the Lord himself can save us from the Lord's inevitable, understandable judgment. And this is what we ultimately see happen through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the only one to ever perfectly seek the Lord and follow him. Yet, he died under the judgment of God to clean our houses, to clean our lives of sin, He got swept away in the torrent of God's wrath so none of us have to. By his blood, he forgives us for our idolatry and our apostasy. And he recovenants with us. This is what we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? The new covenant in his blood. He recovenants with us, setting us apart for a purified worship to God. If you have felt convicted today, I would urge you to take your sin seriously and run to the cross of Christ for the first time or the thousandth time. Turn to him or turn back to him. Flee your sin anew. Renounce your idols. Give your whole heart to the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. We're here for you if you've got questions or need help doing this. But if the Spirit has shown you your sin more clearly today, ask Him to show you Christ more clearly as well. Because I don't want you to feel shame or despair today. I want you to feel humility and dependence. I want you to cling to Christ as your only hope. You know how when those emergency alerts go off on our phones... They're loud and annoying. Sometimes they're unnecessary, something far away from us. But sometimes they may save our lives, like like telling us that a dangerous storm is descending and to take cover. I want you to see that the first couple chapters of Zephaniah like this. For us, even for our culture, it may be alarming shocking, or even annoying at times. That's by design. But Zephaniah wasn't trying to just condemn those who would hear his message. He was urging them to find safe refuge from the coming storm. His message is not meant to just alarm us. 
but to save our lives. And when we hear this message, it should do a few things in us. It should give us a calm, quiet confidence in, the, in God's justice. Despite any evil or hostility that we may experience now, God will sweep it away. It should give us a loving urgency in evangelism. Because as we have avoided God's wrath in Christ, we want others to as well. And it should give us a moment-by-moment dependence on Christ and his gospel. Like we're unworthy to be called his family and welcomed home. And yet we are. And he's cleaning house in order to give us a glorious future with him. Will you let him clean you now? Even in these moments. Let him lead you to the cross. Let him become your very life. There's no other hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you've already done in many lives here. How we were bound for judgment, and yet you stepped in, intervened, opened our eyes, softened our hearts, and brought us to yourself. We are eternally grateful. We praise you. For any of those here who have not found this rescue and salvation in Christ, yet I pray that you would convict them today and lead them to the cross and show them your mercy. And may we all anew turn from our sins and turn to you. For you alone are worthy of all our praise. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.